Today we're here with Michael Kazia, and Michael, thank you for uh, joining me. And in fact, part of what I'm going to ask, start by asking at the beginning is to make sure I said your last name properly, because I said it the way sort of the Italians or perhaps the, the Spanish would say it. Uh, but the, when you're in the translation business, you always want to make sure you're at a, at a minimum saying uh, the names properly. So, Michael, thank you for joining me. And uh, tell me, did I say your last name properly? Yeah, Michael Cassia. Perfect. Thank you, Gary. And uh, appreciate um, being invited to the podcast. It's always great to talk about our company. Uh, it's good to see you again. Thanks. And and really, uh, Michael, what we try to do on the podcast is bring uh, executives and, and uh, business people from a variety of uh, areas of expertise, just because it's it keeps it interesting. Uh, everyone learns from the, the insights that we share with, with one another. And uh, ideally with from a variety of uh, industries as well, because that's sometimes uh, what an, an executive can experience in an industry may not be the same in another industry, but often there are parallels that are independent of, uh, of uh, our actual day to day. So, Michael, let's start with some of the basics. Uh, the, tell us a little bit about Michael Kasia overall. Like, where did you grow up? Uh, sort of the little bit of your upbringing and, and uh, uh, getting to know you a bit more. Because I know uh, even, sometimes even people that we've known for a long time don't necessarily know much about our upbringing. Sure. Um, so um, maybe a little bit about uh, the company, because some of your viewers uh, probably have not heard of Organon yet. So we're a relatively new global healthcare company. Uh, we launched not too long ago, so June 2021, so two and a half, almost three years, right in the middle of the pandemic. Uh, we are the only company of our size, so our market cap's around $4 billion, uh, whose primary focus is around women's health. We're active in about 140 countries. And I am the president and managing director of our Canadian organization, and I've been uh, kind of in charge of standing up our company over the last couple of years uh, here in Canada. Um, so a little bit about me. I'm a second generation Filipino Canadian. Uh, so that's the first generation born in this country, um, born and raised in Montreal, West Island of Montreal. And uh, my parents ended up uh, immigrating to Canada. My dad in the late sixties, my mother in the seventies, um, and a lot of my extended family ended up coming with. So, um, Maybe we are all together, nine of my aunts and uncles here in Montreal, and we've got another one, uh, aunt and uncle in, um, in Toronto. Um, nearly all of my aunts, uh, four out of five, uh, were nurses. So if you're growing up in my household at Christmas time, it, you know, you're pretty safe, pretty much, if you got sick. Um, because of that, I think influence in health, I ended up doing my undergrad in biochemistry at uh, McGill here in Montreal. Um, ended up uh, on the business side of healthcare. So it's been about 22 years now that I've been either in pharma or healthcare, um, but I've spent more than half of my career outside of Canada, actually. So I left uh, for New York in 2009, right after the start of the financial crisis, which was interesting. Um, ended up working for um, Shearing uh, Plow down in the United States and doing my MBA uh, at Columbia, um, love my time in the U.S. Um, and then after five, six years, I um, ended up moving to Belgium for love. So uh, my girlfriend at the time, uh, who is now my wife, uh, was Belgian. And um, I moved over there basically to be closer to her and was lucky enough to end up um, running uh, Merck's business in Belgium for um, the hospital care uh, business in Belgium. 
Um, did that for a few years, and then we did a big jump. We moved to Helsinki um, for our, uh, basically a job where I was running Merck's uh, operations in Finland and the three Baltic countries, so Lithuania, Estonia, and Latvia. Um, loved our time there, beautiful city, Helsinki. Uh, and then I actually ended up moving to Switzerland after a few years to uh, prepare for the launch of Organon. I was working for um, Organon's now CEO um, and looking how we would operationalize the business across the globe. Um, I then got a chance to move back home to here to Montreal here in Canada to start up our Canadian operations for uh, Organon and uh, haven't looked back. So um, I'm also a proud husband. Uh, my wife is Belgian, but blonde hair, green eyes, but she was actually born in the Philippines. Um, oh, wow. And uh, yeah, so it was quite interesting when we first met talking about uh, her life over there. Um, I've never actually lived there, right? So she spent uh, the early part of her life there. Um, we have two children, young children, two and six, and they are Belgo, Filipino, Canadian. Um, but Gary, during the World Cup, I uh, discovered that they're only Belgian during the World Cup. So, um, it's been an interesting experience so far. That's just a little bit about uh, my background. Oh, and, and Michael, I, I can't blame them for being only Belgian during the, the World Cup uh, or Euro Cup uh, when it comes up uh, next, because the, the, uh, from a probability perspective, it's probably their best bet at, uh, at being a winner. <laughs> Absolutely. I don't think we have a, I have a choice. I don't have a choice in the matter, actually. So, uh... <laughs> and, you know, there's some good rallying around it. Uh, and uh, Michael, you know, the, I know you, we had chatted a little bit about where you had lived in the past and so on. I thought it was important to share with the audience. I appreciate you doing that. And I will go back to Oregon and we're going to chat a bit more about sort of uh, the industry overall, but uh, a little bit uh, because I've, you know, we've had a few guests on the podcast that had worked internationally. And one of the things I always like to ask is, what's your favorite country having lived in all those countries? And you and I had chatted a little bit about this offline, but just for the audience, uh, you know, having experienced those uh, and all wonderful countries, but could you pick a favorite? That's a super tough question. Um, I know. <laughs> Montreal is fantastic as my family's here. I love the city um, and I love the culture that we have here in Canada. Um, if I had to pick a city that's outside um, where we live now, where my family is situated, I think I have two favorites and they are in different stages of life. So uh, when we lived in, um, in Zurich in Switzerland, um, with kids, it's just fantastic. Um, really easy access to all of Europe has to offer uh, outdoors and skiing and, and um all types of activities that you don't think you can do living in a metropolitan city, super well accessed, great quality of life. Um, you know, we really enjoyed our time there as a family. Before I was married, I had a really good time in New York, time where, you know, I was doing my MBA, um, a, a real speed and vibrancy to that city. Um, and of, of course, different culture. And I learned a lot from the people I was around on a daily basis during my time down there. So, um, I would say two different um, experiences, um, both of them loved, but for different parts of, or different stages of my life, I'd say. For sure. And, and that's, that's, not, uh, that's not unlike other answers we've had, which is sometimes where you are in your life can, determine, can make sort of the place a bit better than, than later on. So that makes a lot of sense. I, I can appreciate New York being a bit more challenging once you have kids and the vibrance of it. So. 
Um, but uh, Michael, I, I will go back a little bit to your uh, sort of the formative, whether it's, um, and, and feel free to answer this in, in two different categories if it's easier. But one of the things I always ask our guests is who had the biggest impact on your life? And, and if you want to segregate it versus professionally versus growing up, up to you. But um, So Gary, my answer is a little, I'll say, uh, it's a little cheesy. I'm a, I'm a mama's boy. So um, I think my mother was the biggest influence, both from a professional standpoint, but also from a personal standpoint. Um, growing up, my mother was the number one uh, bread earner. Both my parents worked. Um, and she ended up uh, ending her career on the board of directors of a small airline company. Um, she immigrated here. All my aunts were basically um, nurses, but she decided to go in business. So in the 70s, think about it. Um, women from uh, another country, immigrants be able to advance. Uh, my mother taught me about business and challenge and, and how to succeed. My father, uh, we had a large extended family from my father's side that was living in Montreal, really taught me about the importance of and support of extended family. Um, and, you know, um, for my mother, who was first generation, who was English and French, you know, weren't the best, um, had different challenges to be able to get where she was, but she did. And I learned for a lot from that. And um, in my family, uh, I think we have a long line of, of really strong women. Um, my grandmother, my mother's mother, um, started a business. She's now in her 90s, but started a business. And you can imagine way back when to be able to pay for the university education of her three kids. Um, my dad's sister, um, so on his side of the family, immigrated, was the first to immigrate here in Canada as a nurse and sent money back to the Philippines so that her brothers and sisters could also complete their university education. She's kind of the matriarch of the family now. Um, so all of those um, uh, strong women played a kind of a, a role in, in how you uh, provide for the family, but they were also the primary caregivers, which um, also set an example for me on, uh, on my personal life. So um, yeah, it's a, it's a bit of a cheesy question, but I definitely am a mama's boy. No, and, and it's a wonderful story, Michael, uh, and I can appreciate the challenges uh, for any women in the 70s to do well in business, certainly as an immigrant, uh, you amplify that uh, between language barriers as well as uh, experience, and, and uh, that would have been a tough time in business regardless, so the, that's, that's very telling. Uh, now, Michael, we seldom end up uh, doing what we thought we were going to do when we were younger or children. Uh, what did you want to be growing up? Was there something that you wanted to be growing up? And uh, how did that play out? <laughs> so, so, Gary, I wanted to be a doctor. Um, so it's maybe it's a bit stereotypical, but, uh, you know, if you're young, you're smart, and you want to help people, um, you know, you, you think about doctor. If you're smart, you want to be a doctor, a lawyer, engineer. That's how I was kind of brought up. Uh, I think the fact that we had a lot of nurses in the family also maybe influenced that. Um, but I figured out pretty quick that uh, I wasn't so good at the science bits, at least when it came to university. I did all right. I passed my classes, but it was not something I had a love for. And I found myself um, kind of uh, doing better in other areas. So I did a minor in business, but then also did a little bit of student government and a lot of um, work on the side with uh, organizing different initiatives. And I figured out that I was better at other things. Um, but uh, I still am in healthcare in a way, um, just not where I initially planned to be, at least when I was starting uh, 
my university career. Um, but yeah, um, things change and uh, I figured it out pretty quick. Well, you, you are contributing to healthcare to your point. So it's just, just different contexts. And I think, uh, I think your aunts uh, and the family will appreciate that. So it counts. Uh, but uh, Michael, the the uh, other question is, the you know as executives sometimes we we spend so much time on the professional life etc. But there's obviously another side. There's family and then there's hobbies, things we do for fun and to detach. What's your favorite hobby? What do you sort of do to detach from from everyday work? Um, so I wish I had an interesting answer for you, Gary. Um, and I think if you'd asked me this question 10 years ago, I probably would have some hobbies I used to do that I'm not doing anymore. Uh, but my favorite hobby right now is watching my kids. So we got um, got a two and six year old. And so spending uh, time with them and making sure that I'm, you know, around and um, looking at their activities. I'm a hockey dad now. Um, that's where I like to really spend the lion's share of my spare time. Um, I, I figured out pretty quick when I was um, working in Switzerland um, and uh, when we were setting up Organon, trying to figure it out across different countries, I was on a transatlantic flight, I think, almost every week, right? We only had my eldest at that point in time, but um, figured out pretty quick that, you know, they, your family moves on without you, but, um, you know, you're the one that ends up missing out a little bit. So um, uh, now that I have the opportunity where I'm traveling a little bit less internationally, um, and I'm able to spend more time than I'm trying to commit as much time as possible to that. And it's a lot, right? So like many parents out there, um, my eldest is in uh, hockey on Saturday and Sundays. Saturday afternoon, we're in swimming. I'm in the pool with my youngest for swimming lessons, the two-year-old, uh, also on Saturday afternoon. There's martial arts during the week. So um, that tends to take up the lion's share of my time and it, it um, makes me smile. So uh, I would say that's that's my biggest hobby at the this period of time when what better hobby right michael it's uh and i know the feeling really well so i, I can appreciate that uh, the detachment is spending time with them and and it's because it's so involving in itself uh, it, it ends up uh, being uh, a big component yeah i know you do yeah, and uh, Michael, just you know, we talked a bit about the family and the upbringing, but what motivates you to work hard? Because you don't get to to where you are, sort of whether we're, whether early on in in your career, but also uh, in leadership with an organ on without working hard. What motivates you? Um, that's a, a really good question. Um, the most important thing, I think, to, to keep me going on that time when we've got. Um, more work, and it's always like this, more work than there is time in the day or where you're, you're burning really hot and, uh, you know, it could take you to a burnout. I think um, what has been really important to me is I had a friend uh, about 12, 13 years ago, and um, she had really helped me figure out what is the most important values in my life, right? So there's four things that I put on a piece of paper and she gave me a method to kind of tease that out. We talked about it. Um, and I find that no matter how busy I am, if I stick to those four values, I'm happy and I'm, I'm able to push forward and, and do the things that I need to do. So um, those things are, first thing is family. I think you've probably figured that one out. So carving out, no matter how much time it is, uh, some time for that to re-energize. Um, trusting the people I'm working with 
and as a leader now, I'm able to create that environment, I think. Um, but it's super important because uh, if you don't have that, then the environment that you're going to be winning, uh, working in will suck energy out of you. Um, I like to compete. I need something to win. Uh, I figured that out pretty early in business I, on your, uh, with your organization and any, anyone who's listening, I think that we have in spades, right? So uh, there's no uh, shortage of that and what I do to motivate me. But then the last thing um, that we put on a piece of paper is that uh, the work that we that I do, it, it energizes me if I know that it's having an, a positive impact in some way. Yes, financially, um, in terms of the organization and shareholders, but also on top of that, that um, there is an end game in terms of societal impact. And um, I think it was in 2006, probably, where I first kind of felt it firsthand. Um, I was working um, at a company, different one to the one now, but um, on a particular medication that um, uh, really helped people get over a debilitating disease. And it was close to Christmas. It was late. And pretty much almost had everyone had gone home. I was trying to get things done before the break. And uh, I got a phone call. And I was, I was on the phone um, listening to the person on the other end. They were talking pretty slowly. And, you know, I was thinking to myself, I just want to finish this up, get home. Uh, but then I realized that it was, um, it was a patient. And they were telling me about the fact that they had had to stop work uh, about eight or nine months earlier because of um, the symptoms of this disease. And um, they'd recently, over the last three months, four months, had been put on our medication. Uh, at that point in time, it wasn't reimbursed in the geography she was living in, we were giving for free. Um, but she had been able to go back to work a few weeks earlier. And she just, it being Christmas, wanted to call somebody at the company to say thank you. And given, I think on that team, I was the only one in the office at the time they forwarded the call to me. And, um, that, you know, it feels good when you're working hard and you're burning the midnight oil, knowing that you can have some type of positive impact with what you're doing um, keeps you going. And, you know, we, we talk a lot about um, mission-driven companies, how it's even more important today to keep people energized and making sure that's clear on us and our customers. Um, but, yeah, I, I felt it firsthand. I've gotten hugs in, the, in an airport because I had the logo of a medication on my... Uh, um, on my bag, um, you know, things like that, you know, knowing that you're actually having an impact, um, they keep you going. And, and it's also true with what we're trying to do with, uh, with Organon today. Yeah. No, and that must be very rewarding, uh, Michael. We often say in our jobs, well, we're not saving lives, but when you're in a business like yours, especially uh, when you're in the healthcare or pharmaceutical space, then sometimes you are actually saving lives. So it can actually be very critical and, and very important. Indeed, and we, we shouldn't forget about it. We get caught up with the daily issues and things like that, so it's good to keep sight of it. Uh, so, Michael, I know you touched on this already, but just um, if you were to sort of summarize quickly, what, what would be the more pivotal moments in your career? I know we talked a bit about the cities that you moved to, but from, uh, let's say, item uh, times that really skyrocketed uh, or that supercharged the, the way uh, where you are today. Um, so I, I think about the advancements or the, the step ups that I've had in my career. Um, and I, I think I could share some of the things that I think I did personally to kind of get there. But, um, where I really feel lucky is that I've had 
I've never had a shortage of people who would advocate for me. And I think uh, especially people who are uh, earlier on in their career may not focus on that, but it's been so important um, for me to arrive to where I am today that the people understood what I could do, uh, saw the value I could bring in, and more importantly, were willing to share that with others and advocate for others so that I could get um, where I am today. Um, and it started early on. I remember uh, in university, my last semester, wasn't done school yet. Um, there was a, a pharma company that posted roles for recent graduates. And I wasn't ready to graduate, but I applied. So I, uh, I got an interview. And the, um, the HR, um, head of HR for the company was interviewing the students. And I said right from the start, listen, I'm not graduating, but I really want to work for the company. I wanted to... Uh, meet people, and that's why I applied so that I could get um, uh, get to know the company, and they could get to know me. And um, this individual said to me, "He's like, listen, like we we did the interviews. He's like, I'm I'm impressed, but you're not graduating." But he says, "But I can see from your CV, we went to the same high school." So he's like, oh. "I'm going to keep you in mind, right? right. And um, and see like the uh, someone from our high school gave him his first shot. He's like, I'm going to see if I can do that for you." And so what ended up happening was uh, he got me a part-time job um, when I was still uh, working. They needed a student in another area. And I ended up working for that company after I graduated. So right from the start, helped me. I had, um, when I had gotten accepted to Columbia, I was worried that I wouldn't be able to afford it at the time, you know, with the cost of Ivy League education. And I had a fantastic uh, manager at that point in time and she advocated for the company to help pay it off, right? Help, help pay the offset the costs of it. And I would not, that education was invaluable. I, I don't know if I would have gone through it had that not been the case. And um, so I can um, say that she definitely helped me. Um, <laughs> I had another um, sponsor who um, helped me get the job in, in uh, Belgium when I wanted to move to be closer to my wife. A hell of a lot nicer to be moving to a place holding a job versus having to look when you get there um and so this person really advocated for me to that so you know i, I almost owe my marriage to it as this individual as well and um i had a, a the ceo of organon who invited me to join the project early on um you know also uh really helped advocate um for me in, in terms of where i am today so that's the the key moments, I think, in my in my um, progression has been really due to folks that have been willing to, um, you know, bang their hands on the table to say that uh, I should be advanced here or there. And uh, without them, I don't think I would, you know, be where I am today. And, and Michael, I can certainly appreciate that. But at the same time, uh, somebody w with uh, with your skills and personality also created that room for for themselves and uh, to get the sponsors to buy into it because that doesn't happen uh, just coincidentally. I think it's, it's a lot of hard work, a lot of dedication that people see early on. The fact that you applied before you had even graduated would have been appreciated by themselves because if somebody is looking for somebody eager, that's notable in itself. So that's, that's telling. Uh, so really interesting. And part of the reason why we do this in the podcast is that how else did you learn these things? But it's really, you really learn a lot about people when they've gone through this sort of stages. Uh, so, Michael, naturally, you don't go, you don't become um, 
sort of president, you don't uh, get to this stage in your career without some challenges along the way. What did you say have been some of the biggest challenges you've encountered and, and perhaps how you got over them? Because if you think about the actual, a lot of our listeners, they, they may be at sort of different stages in their career. They may also be dealing with challenges of their own. So sometimes listening to how others may have overcome challenges could be, can help reinforce the course of action, perhaps uh, an opportunity to pivot and be open-minded. Um, yeah, the, this one, if I'm going to highlight the biggest challenge uh, that I've had in our, in our professional career, my professional career, it's, uh, it's been the creation of Organon. Um, so as a little bit of background, the company was, um, Organon was created from a spin from Merck, uh, so Merck is, uh, I think many of you will know, is uh, one of the largest pharmaceutical companies in the world. And um, basically there was uh, about half the portfolio of medications that uh, the company felt were being underinvested, not because there wasn't a business opportunity, not because there wasn't a patient need. Just in terms of the prioritization of the company, the organization uh, Merck was focusing on oncology, was focusing on vaccines and women's health and our other rest of our portfolio, uh, less so. So they felt that um, the two companies could do more with separate strategies with a little bit more focus. And um, they had uh, asked a, a certain small group of people uh, led by uh, Oregon's uh, now CEO to say, hey, can we move this company and, and make it separate? Create the strategy, uh, the business plan uh, to kind of get it approved. So... Um, he and I had worked together in the past, uh, Kevin, and he'd say, you, you want to um, be part of this, right? To help figure out, we're going to try and uh, develop the business plan. Um, then how do we operationalize the spin? So how are we going to uh, staff up to about 10,000 employees across the goal? Um, pick the culture that we want to uh, build aligned with our uh, new company. Uh, figure out how we get all the regulatory licenses transferred from one legal entity to the other stand up a new supply chain, um, transfer all the marketing authorizations in every single country in the world from one entity to another. Uh, we had to figure out how to stand up a new IT system that would be functional for uh, operations in 140 different countries that we operate in um, and allow us to have the processes to function on our day one, okay? We're going to announce this, that we're doing this to the whole world on February 2020. And we plan on spinning out as a separate company uh, about a year and a half later, roughly, right? Um, so aggressive, not impossible, but aggressive. So basically it's like, do you want to be a part of that? And um, uh, do, you, you know, do you want that a, a type of experience? So um, I think uh, I said at the time what anybody would have said, which was, uh, you know, how much you're going to pay me? Because basically, I didn't say that. So, I mean, the challenge itself was super interesting, right? How are we going to operationalize this, this separation? Um, so here we launched, or we launched, we announced on February 2020. And then what happens on March 2020 um, is the WHO declared a global pandemic. And all the plans that we had done, the strategy, the separation um, to create this company now needed to move entirely virtually when countries were shutting down, governments that we needed to activate some of these things, these licensing transfers, creation of legal entities, were also uh, a bit in limbo. How do we do that? 
um, and make that operational. And um, I think um, moving quickly to adapt, move everything online, figure out a method to continue our work in, uh, in launching this company, um, which is, you know, uh, will be a Fortune 500 company in the future, um, you know, is, uh, is not a small feat. But uh, I think the clear direction that we had and the fact that we went online actually helped um, things move faster. It created an environment now where we were able to move quicker to execute. Um, it was easier virtually at the end of the day in some instances rather than actually if we were in the office. And um, post, we were now a company that was born in the environment and operationalized in the environment, which made us, uh, let's say, a little bit um, easier us, for us to adapt in, I, I guess, the new reality that we have now. Um, and what kept us going is this company and the mission that the, uh, our leadership had kind of articulated because they made that very clear from day one. And I think coming back to keeping people motivated, um, if you believe it's worthwhile and, and you own the decisions that are being made, it's just a lot easier to lean in and make sure that uh, you overcome the obstacles. And we had a ton. Um, and we launched on time, year and, uh, 17 months after. Um, and by all, um, all metrics in terms of operational, um, uh, operational success here in Canada, it's been fantastic. We've gone from 100 people when we were launched to 180, so we've nearly doubled our population. Um, we've launched two new products since we were born two years ago, um, and we plan on launching seven more over the next three years. And um, IQVIA, which is a company that tracks the uh, sales of different pharmaceutical companies, has us growing 20% last year and 20% this year. So um, I think bringing it from thinking to execution has been the biggest challenge, but it's also been the biggest reward of my professional career. So, um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I said a lot there, but there was so much happened over those couple of years that um, um, I think helped shape the experience that I've had and uh, satisfaction in terms of uh, what we've been able to do the last few years. When, and I appreciate the detail, Michael, because it really paints a picture of uh, what that evolution looked like. So it doesn't surprise me that it was sort of the biggest challenge of your career. Whether it's the timeline, whether it's the amount of items to deal with, it's, it's a lot. Uh, despite the, the resources that large organizations can provide as a platform, there's still a lot to figure out in that time frame. Indeed. And some really strong people working on uh, on the project, a lot of them. So one thing I'm curious about, how did you pick the, the like these strong people in a short period of time, Michael? Like how did how did you it's like picking the team that is it's gonna play for you at the Super Bowl, but it's like how did you uh, how did you come about like building this team in short order? Um, so here in Canada, there was uh, a certain group of people with certain expertise that um, were uh, tapped on the shoulder from Merck to, to come over, um, and they have been fantastic. So uh, I have to say the expertise that uh, we were able to pull from the organization at the spin um, has been one of our strengths, but I won't say in which area, but in, in, in certain areas in particular. Um, For sure. And then the other piece in terms of uh, making sure that we've been able to operationalize since we've ramped up to 100 to 180 is ensuring that um, we have a strong uh, communication of our mission and that our culture uh, and the culture that we say that we live by 
is obvious to anyone who comes in, whether it's in an interview process, whether they walk through the halls, um, whether our people are talking to their friends in industry, because we needed to recruit uh, as quickly as possible. And um, helping people understand uh, what we're trying to do in terms of the impact of women's health, and the, but also the culture that we're having internally, and there's certain aspects that are extremely important to us, um, has been a, uh, a driver of being able to ramp up the number of people within the organization in such a short period of time. Um, I don't think without that clarity of mission and making sure that we walk the talk, to use a cliche, uh, in terms of the culture and that when people talk about us in the industry, um, that it resonates from anyone who's coming into the organization or, or beyond. It's been important. One of the things um, I've said a, like a, about our, our experience and our culture, it needs to be strong enough so that um, no matter if a person stays with us their entire career or they leave in a year or two years for another opportunity that we can't or unable to give them at the time, that they have a positive thing to say about their experience here and that it's consistent every single time. If we're, if we're doing that, then um, we're going to be able to staff up um, the way we could. So in short, Gary, I think we started off with a strong base, but we were really clear about the culture and the mission that we were trying to build so that recruitment went um, smoother than uh, probably would have gone otherwise. No, and I can appreciate that, Michael. And I, I want to go to a question momentarily around the pharmaceutical industry more generally. But before I do that... Uh, this was a tight timeline. Even with a really good team, it's 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 hard to achieve. How did you keep the team motivated? What are some of the tips you can share with the audience around leadership and, and motivation when you're trying to accomplish such a, what seems like a monumental task in a short time frame? Um, it was tough, quite frankly. Iggy, Gary, we um, did a survey. We do surveys annually. Obviously, most companies do to try and uh, gauge the level of engagement, right? Um, and quite transparently on the workload uh, portion of it, like, do I have enough resources, time of the day, et cetera? Uh, only half of our population said yes. Okay, so, you know, 48, 49%. Um, but um, the majority of the people answered the survey, so 97, 98% of people have, have answered the survey year after year, right, in our third year now going into it. And the engagement scores um, were higher than 85, close to 90% in, in both years. Um, and what resonates has been the fact that people believe in what we're trying to do. Uh, we, we say that uh, we're advocating for gender equity and that um, when women are healthy, they progress further in their careers, they have um, more success in their lives, and that influences not just themselves, but the economy and their families. And I, I can see no better example than in my own family with the three women that um, I mentioned earlier, right? Um, and I think everybody does. So within the organization, when you have that clear of a, a reason for being, it's easier to put your head down and overcome the challenges. And being our, uh, very clear in that and making sure that that is true in everything I do, um, as well as our, our, our leaders within the organization, um, is important because then they see it's, it's true for our company. It's not just something that we say. Um, the culture and the, for us is, is not, um, not an add-on. It's part of our business strategy. We will be more successful if we have this culture. We will recruit better. We'll retain people. They'll be more motivated no matter how much the work is. 
uh, although we are uh, very cognizant of what we need to do to make sure that people remain resilient. But a big part of that is believing in what we're doing and recognizing individuals. Uh, the other piece that I'll say is that um, our organization has tried to highlight everyone in the company and make it visible to the contribution that they give. I mean, the teams. There's a lot of, um, in every company, every large organization, teams that are always in the back that you never know what they're doing. But if they weren't there, you'd have issues. We like to make sure that they're still front and center and that people start to understand what they do. And I think that's also important for making sure that people are, remain committed. If you're never recognized because you're always the unsung hero, then um, you, 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 know, you lose your momentum at a certain period of time. So clarity of mission, that culture piece, but then also making sure that everyone, including the unsung heroes, uh, get their time in the sun. Um, and I think that's, um, that's important for us to achieve what we have um, so far, at least. And, and, and that's a really good point, uh, Michael. So the clarity of mission we had heard before on the podcast, certainly highlighting the unsung heroes, perhaps not as often. And it's so important because they are often, you know, they make the magic happen, but you don't see them as much in front lines. It's, it's like when you're playing defense in most sports, it's the glory is with the people scoring, but without good defense, you don't, you can't do well. Uh, front and center. So even when we had our CEO come and visit, you put those people in front to share their stories. Normally that doesn't happen. And yeah, um, I think it uh, shows something about the culture, but also the recognition that's been important. Yeah, and also the, the trust in, in your immediate team that you mentioned earlier, I think that's also an important point. And I can appreciate why that would have been critical in this success, because when you're accomplishing so many things without a team that you have trust on, delivering some of these items would have been overwhelming for anyone. Absolutely. That culture of trust and transparency, so many things. Um, we get a lot of feedback around that, that you know, um, people are happy that we're sharing all the details with them as it is because they're adults and they can understand the direction they're going if we're giving them context. So uh, I think that's absolutely true. Uh, Michael, I, w I want to go to a little bit of a, a bigger picture. Uh, so you, you spent a uh, big picture question, rather. You spent the better part of 20 years in the pharmaceutical industry. What did you say sort of the evolution has been in, in, uh, in that time frame? And where do you think the industry is going overall, in your opinion? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, when you look about the industry, let's say years ago, uh, 10, 15 years ago, um, there was a lot more, uh, let's say, uh, me too medications, similar medications doing the same thing. Um, there were less pressure on pricing. Um, before it used to be, can you prove that your medication does what it says it's gonna do and it's safe? Today, that's still the case. But I think um, what's uh, new, particularly here in Canada and Europe, but also in the United States is, is your drug worth it? Is the medication, the treatment worth it, right? Are you saving time, money? Is the impact that you have on the individual's life, like help us quantify that? So I think that's um, a big shift in the industry, let's say over the last 10 years. And now we're looking at um, building in some of those metrics into how we do research. So not just to show that it's, it's safe and it works, but also what we're doing is, is better than what's already existing. And so because of that, you see a lot less um, productivity uh, what, when I say productivity, you see less of the medications that in 10 years ago would have come to market. Now it's just not worth it because the, the market is already well served. 
And then these additional medications that are coming out end up being, um, I'll say, rent-seeking in the sense that the value is there with existing therapies. And so you see far less of that, uh, which means that companies need to invest more in research and development to actually get the medications across the line. I think we're um, also changing or we've changed where 10, 15 years ago, the primary um, decider in terms of um, how medication use would be uh, healthcare professionals. And that's still true today, but the stakeholders are, are much more because you want to make sure that um, what we're bringing um, to patients also is worthwhile for society. And so every province has, um, you know, a, a different budget and what they want to prioritize. Um, and there's mechanisms above market uh, uh, nationally, obviously, um, to evaluate whether they are uh, they're worth it. And so those are important stakeholders as well to ensure that they understand the value or not of the medications and the therapies that we're, we're bringing to help solve these issues. Um, that means that cost of investment and um, let's say hit rate for the um, assets that uh, companies have on, on the development are, are less. Uh, but I think, you know, it means better outcomes at the end of the day because whatever does come through um, uh, will hopefully, because of the, the change in the environment, be much more impactful, right, for the patients. That are, and there's a lot of still unmet needs that, uh, that we're focusing on to make sure that, um, you know, um, we're able to move things in the right direction for uh, patients, but also for the Canadian healthcare system. And Michael, just as a quick follow-up on that, just because Organon is exclusively dedicated to women's health, um, how do you, what are the biggest challenges you see with women's health? Uh, also, sort of, how are they evolving and, and uh, what do you foresee them to be? So, um, so the, there's an important, um, it's an important issue, women's health, uh, and it's kind of our reason for being uh, largely. Um, and we're trying to find solutions. There's inequities, I think, in, in healthcare and women's health. Um, and we're hoping to help to, to, to fix some of that through the initiatives that we're doing. Um, and I think it's, it's not just important from a social point of view. Um, I think, and this is one take home message around the issues in women's health I'd love to leave with, um, with industry and the audience is that it's important, not just from a social impact perspective, but also um, from as employers, all of us are employers, and also the impact on the economy. You know, um, there's inequities. There's a lot of them, um, and healthcare permeates everything about our our lives. So if there are inequities there, then it has uh, an impact on how people will progress and their contribution to the economy. Um, you know, you only need to think about. And I, I, unfortunately, I think this is the case for many of us. We have friends who have been impacted by cancer. And that completely changes how they're thinking about their lives, how they invest in their careers, um, and you know how they will look to prioritize what they want to do over the next five years, right, ten years, or for sure. Be. Um, so when you have inequities in healthcare, that permeates through all aspects of the individual's life. And when we were building Organon, um, we looked at the global landscape, right. And even though women influence 80% of healthcare dollars, right, um, for themselves and their families, uh, there's only 4% of global research and development that are on women's specific disease. And if you exclude cancer out of that, it's, it's 1% of global research and development. Um, 
only 5% of digital health investment, and you would think digital health is newer and there would be a better split of, um, let's say, the dollars there going into R&D are oriented towards women's health specifically. And if you look at the healthcare pipeline at the end of 2022, uh, only 2% of the current healthcare pipeline are focused in on, uh, on women's health. So those numbers almost, they kind of speak for themselves. Um, but to add actual impact, you know, on women and their families, so one of the areas that we're working here in Canada, but also globally is in, in contraception. Uh, nearly half of all pregnancies in Canada are unintended. Um, and now you can think about the impact that that would have on, on an individual, their career trajectory, economic impact, or uh, workforce participation, not to mention social costs within our, our system. Uh, and there are clear economic benefits to um, providing contraception uh, for women. British Columbia has recently um, enacted universal contraception, so anyone any one um, uh, living in that province can get access to contraception. Uh, and it, you know, the numbers show that if you invest a dollar to every dollar that you invest towards universal contraception, you can save nine in the public sector overall in terms of social benefit costs. Uh, so the economic benefits of investing in that are realized pretty quickly. So cost neutral after two years and then saving money after three. Um, and Orbit on Canada, we're working with stakeholders here in the country um, to see how that can be uh, added to other areas as well, and this, uh, the SOGC, Action Canada, uh, as well as others, uh, to help improve awareness and access to contraception. Globally, uh, we're also doing that. Um, we're, our goal is to um, uh, have 120 million uh, women by 2030 um, uh, to prevent unintended pregnancies in uh, areas of um, uh, economic uh, countries with uh, economically difficult situations. So um, we've got um, a number of initiatives to help improve that um, uh, globally that we've been recognized for. And in Canada, we're, we're trying to make sure that uh, all Canadians can have access to the needs that, that um, uh, there are needs in terms of contraception. Um, on the other end of things, uh, menopause, um, you know, if you think about it, right, um, you, myself, anyone, right, uh, no matter what uh, gender we identify with, uh, 45 to 55 is peak earning years, right? It's supposed to be the time in your life that you make the most of your money, okay? Um, that means that 25% of our workforce uh, are going to be going through menopause over the next uh, five years at a time when they're technically at the peak of their earning potential. So, you know, you, companies talk about glass ceiling. And so this is something that if you're not considering in terms of your benefits package and how you're dealing with, can have an, an economic impact and it's significant. So 1400 uh, in healthcare costs and $770 in lost productivity per person um, if you're untreated, right? Um, and that's not to mention mental health issues as well as um, maternal health, right? So we're also uh, the number one cause of maternal health um, during childbirth is uh, a postpartum hemorrhage. It's also an area that we're looking at, um, as well as areas of endometriosis, which comes up a lot as an unmet need that's not being treated. So my message would be that women's health is not a niche. Um, it includes much more than just maternal and reproductive care when you think about depression, osteoporosis, inflammatory disease. Um, and it represents an enormous opportunity for value creation, uh, but as well as improving the livelihoods um, and, and lives of women. 
So that's going to have positive social and economic uh, impact across our society. Michael, that's really insightful. I appreciate you sharing that. And I know it'll be certainly a lot of it will be uh, news to the audience because I've read a fair bit on the issue and I still learned a lot in the last few minutes just from hearing you. So I think really, really important messaging um, and a lot to take away from it as well. So it's I appreciate you sharing that. Uh, I will pivot to the to a, a lighter a lighter portion of our podcast. Well, we talked about key business uh, takeaways and and uh, some key issues in in uh, such as human health, uh, uh, women's health. How do we get uh, to the to the parts that are uh, essentially what I'd like to say are rapid fire questions? So this sure. is I'll, I'll ask some of the questions that are. Uh, really uh, simple and then uh, the the first word that comes to mind uh and and whatever that may be what is your favorite word <laughs> now now <laughs> yeah, I, love I, can yeah. um, I try to be patient but uh, it is my favorite it is my favorite word when we're able to deliver quickly and and uh, as one business leader I spoke to said, now is better than perfect. So I yeah. can appreciate that. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, what word do you hate? Um, gossip. I think uh, keeping things out in the open and, and clear is um, and transparent is important for our company. Yeah, gossip I don't like so much. Very powerful. Um, what word do you have a hard time pronouncing, if any? Uh, Hip, hippopotamus. I have, I have a hard time. I don't know why. <laughs> I just call them hippos because it makes it shorter. <laughs> true, true, true. Um, what is your favorite word in another language, if any? Uh, mabuhay, which is uh, a Filipino term, kind of equated to like aloha, um, but you can uh, use it for long life, success, um, anything kind of positive like that as a greeting. Mabuhay. All right. I'm going to note of that as well. And uh, how many languages do you speak, Michael? Uh, so three. So English, French, and then Filipino. Uh, I took a little bit of Spanish, but um, not, not so good at that one. And the last rapid fire question, what's one word to describe yourself? Uh, papa. So I think that's, uh, that's something that you know, if I'm going to pick a word to describe me, that'll that comes up to the top of the list. No, and, and really appreciate that uh, as well, Michael. So, Michael, the, the, uh, the, I had many more questions I wanted to ask you, but in an effort to keep the podcast at a certain length that the team, that any listener can, can uh, listen to in a commute or in, uh, while they're doing for a jog, it's, we're going to save the, some, of, some of these for an encore uh, of this podcast, and maybe we do a 2.0 version. Uh, a little while down the road. But I really appreciate your time today and the insights you've shared. I think there's a lot for the audience to, to take away from it and really learn from as well. So I really appreciate your time today. Thank you, Gary. And anytime, really appreciate the time to talk a little bit about the, uh, the company and a super interesting discussion. So thank you.